Ever since the aftermath of the Titanic disaster, the Coast Guard has been patrolling the North Atlantic for icebergs that could pose hazards. They started with ships, then moved to fixed-wing aircraft. Now, as part of a partnership with the Homeland Security Department's Science and Technology Directorate, satellites. Matthew Barger is Program Manager for Maritime Safety in the DHS Science and Technology Directorate, and Commander Marcus Hirschberg is Commander of the Coast Guard's International Ice Patrol. They spoke with Federal News Network's Jared Serbu about what DHS is calling Project Titanic. Commander Hirschberg, I think I'd like to start with you. I think it's fair to say this is not the most famous of Coast Guard missions. So if you could take us through a little bit the elevator pitch of what the the mission of the Ice Patrol actually is as it's done today and maybe some of the hazards that you're trying to mitigate right now. Sure, I'm happy to. Uh, So while our mission is not the most famous, it's one of our oldest missions. So um, Ice Patrol came about in 1914. So as as everyone will recall, in 1912, uh, the Titanic tragedy occurred, um, and she sank off the uh, coast of Newfoundland, and uh, more than 1,500 people were lost in this mass mass casualty event at sea. Um, following the extreme outrage in North America and in Europe, um, the public demanded action, and the first uh, international convention for the safety of life at sea was, was brought together, and that convention established the International Ice Patrol and uh, stated that the U.S. Coast Guard be in charge of managing the International Ice Patrol. So starting in 1914, that's what we did. Um, in the early days, we used cutters or ships to follow the uh, iceberg populations as they transited south following the Labrador Current or what we call Iceberg Alley. Uh, in later years following uh, World War II, we began to use aircraft for visual patrols. Uh, and now we use uh, aircraft using visual and radar, but are currently transitioning to the use of satellites only to conduct our mission. All right, that's a really good setup. So let's talk about some of the the space-based technology that that may come into play here. Matthew, how did you get tied in with this mission requirement and and, and figure out that these commercial satellite capabilities might actually be helpful here? Yeah, thanks. So I think the important piece is S&T as a service organization, uh, we service the component needs. So when Coast Guard, uh, ICE, CBP bring us work to do, we look at the available technologies, look at the available solution spaces. And in this case, the ICE Patrol was, was a, a, a customer we could service with the existing and future commercial space uh, capabilities. So iceberg surveillance was really costly. Coast Guard wanted to have us help them with addressing that. Uh, the aviation hours were, were uh, extensive. Uh, and so cost savings and availability of technology to help them with that mission uh, was very important. Um, you know, the access that satellites provide, the ability for satellites to data collect faster, and then the sensor technologies that have improved over the decades since Ice Patrol was founded is significant. Uh, so synthetic aperture radar, radar technology on a space asset is what's used with this project. Uh, and really, it's a much wider area. Uh, the ocean is big. And so uh, science and technology took up the challenge to be able to detect these icebergs on a larger scale than ever before. So the coverage area, obviously, a lot greater than what you would get out of an, an aviation fleet. But but for either one of you, talk about the kind of fidelity of the imagery that you get compared to what you would get from a sensor package on a C-130. So right now we're using what would be considered fairly low resolution synthetic aperture radar satellites. Um, we make a lot of use right now of the European Space Agency's uh, Sentinel, Sentinel-1 um, SAR uh, satellites. Um, they're at a, a 20 meter resolution. So we currently, uh, we really can't use them to detect an iceberg smaller than 20 meters. 
Uh, so that's why you know, in the coming years, we're, we're, we're using uh, aircraft to validate our, our satellite analysis and also transitioning to the use of, of more of, of higher resolution um, imagery. Um, but to put that in comparison, so the, the aircraft we use have a very sophisticated airborne radar that's been around for, for some years now and uh, is able to, to use some other technologies to basically provide an, a radar image, um, which is better than what we're seeing from the satellites right now, but uh, satellite resolution is advancing rapidly. Um, and, and Matthew, yeah. it, it sounds like the, sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off here, but but it, it sounds like the long-term vision here is to continuously use commercial satellite capabilities here. We're not talking about DHS launching its own its own payloads. That's correct. Yeah, the space industry is really undergoing a revolution. I think that's the point here is the government is really benefiting from the commercial sector uh, taking off. Um, the, the spacecraft themselves are getting smaller, cheaper, more prolific on orbit. I think uh, commercial imagery, you'll see the constellations will be much more robust, whereas satellites that have the ability to uh, rapidly image the sea, land, and, and uh, you know, multi-domain. So uh, DHS benefits greatly from those enhanced situational awareness capabilities that we're seeing in the commercial market uh, and Coast Guard certainly with one of the biggest mission spaces of our department is uh, one of the prime beneficiaries of the program that I run. And Commander, medium to long term, is it likely or possible that that this satellite-based effort puts your C-130 pilots out of business or is there always going to be a need for, for aviation capabilities here? So what the medium term is we'll no longer be using C-130 aircraft for our mission. Currently, we use 500 hours of C-130 time uh, to conduct our mission, and that costs about, on average, about $10 million a year. Now, the Coast Guard, what they're going to get back is those 500 hours, and they'll be able to use that for other missions, counter-drug, you know, hurricane response, that sort of thing. Um, but absolutely, in the, uh, in the coming years, we're going to let go of those aircraft. Um, you know, it's bittersweet for us. That's a real been a really um, powerful part of our history. We've worked with uh, our partners at Air Station Elizabeth City, North Carolina for, for many decades now. So it's really winding down a key part of our mission, but um, it absolutely makes sense to, to use resources uh, better than we currently are. So I, I guess the point there is there's enough confidence in, the, in this satellite imagery that you don't think there's a high probability that you're going to miss stuff. Yes, uh, we, we have high, high enough confidence and that is only increasing. So um, this past summer, International Ice Patrol relocated. We were, we were located in Connecticut for many years, and uh, we relocated to the National Capital Region. We're in Suitland, Maryland right now at the uh, NOAA, NOAA Satellite Operations Facility. Um, one of the main reasons for that move was to um, build on some of our partnerships. So we, we can work with, with interagency partners who have uh, commercial satellite contracts and use some of their best practices uh, for our operations. So it really makes sense for us to be here in D.C. And Matthew, looking across the rest of DHS, I mean, where are some obvious places where this same technology or similar technologies might make sense? I mean, the thing that things that come to my mind, even just in the Coast Guard mission space, would be things like, I don't know, looking for drug launches or migrant vessels or, or other things that might suit their intel needs. But across the rest of the components, where else could you use this? Yeah, so I think the the um, capabilities of space are very, uh, you know, it's it's the wide area of the Earth. It's the big changes in the in the environment. So there's some natural ties to natural disaster, uh, you know, sensing any kind of change in uh, change motion in the surface of the Earth. Uh, satellites are really a great technology for that. Communications is another one. So these satellite-based uh, assets also provide a ton of communication capability to, to DHS, uh, not this specific radar satellite, but others. So space-based is a tremendous capability 
we've been uh, looking heavily and in investing into that area uh, to bring a lot of those air and land and maritime technologies to uh, you know enhance those. Uh, flood is a great example. Anytime there's a flood, a change detection capability of a satellite is is uh, is a big benefit. I will add that also a, a benefit of this technology is that it's immune to darkness. So a lot of the aviation assets, uh, you know, some of the physical eyeballs of the pilots or the aircraft crews, uh, you know, darkness has always been one of those uh, challenges. Uh, the satellite images radar it doesn't need light a light source. Uh, and also the difficult to reach locations. So the commander brought up, um, you know, the icebreaker fleet. There's lots of areas that satellite can now provide images in those remote and hard to reach areas. So I think the upstream uh, environment that these icebergs come from is another potential area that that could be benefited from this technology. I'm glad you brought that up because I was going to ask too, do, do these only operate in the visible spectrum? So is cloud cover still going to be a problem or can they see through clouds too? There's a certain amount of cloud cover, you know, it's a, it's sending out energy and and receiving that energy back and imaging it from it. So there is a certain amount of cloud cover. It won't be able to penetrate, but there is uh, an inherent benefit to not relying on a light source, you know, the reflection of light to be able to collect against. Yeah, I'll say from the Coast Guard's point of view, um, this is a good thing for our workforce. Uh, so we do have some geospatial intelligence analysts within the U.S. Coast Guard, um, but that was a really a niche within Coast Guard Intel. That was a very small uh, community, so this kind of doubles the the number of geospatial analysts we have within Coast Guard Intel. Allows us to get a return on investments. So there's a lot of training that goes into that, and they can follow that on with with uh, another two or three assignments during their career instead of just using it once and then moving to something totally different. For example, they they could be doing the ice mission during ice season and other things when it's not ice season. I imagine, right? Potentially, yes. And I'll, I'll just add from, from Ice Patrol's perspective. So we're now, we're also co-located with the U.S. National Ice Center, which is a joint Navy-NOAA command that um, basically provides ice warning for the rest of the globe uh, for, for U.S. ships. Um, so we're now next to them. Um, so they have a lot of missions that we can probably uh, combine forces on. Um, Coast Guard's going to have new generations of icebreakers coming out, and they're going to need onboard ice analysts. So, uh, you know, outside of iceberg season, there's a lot more we can, we can take on. Got it. Okay, let's talk a bit about timeline here. How far off is actual full operational capability here when, when you might start to draw down some of those aviation assets? Our plan is to not, not request any aircraft hours in 2025. So two, two more seasons of flying after this year. That will, that will give us time to validate what we're doing back at our operations center and make sure we're not missing anything. But real capabilities online sooner than that, obviously, before you stop requesting the aviation assets. Yes, there'll be uh, significant testing. Commander Marcus Hirschberg, commander of the Coast Guard's International Ice Patrol, along with Matthew Barger, program manager for Maritime Safety in Homeland Security's Science and Technology Directorate, speaking with Federal News Network's Jared Serbu. We'll post the interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive at Podcast One or wherever you get your shows. Hello and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and today I'm thrilled to be joined by Melissa Bradley, the founder and managing partner at 1863 Ventures, an investment company focused on bridging entrepreneurship and racial equity and accelerating new majority entrepreneurs from high potential to high growth. Additionally, Melissa is co-founder of Venture Back Eureka, a community where small businesses gain unprecedented access to the expertise needed to grow their businesses 
and has more than 20 years of entrepreneurship, investment, and leadership experience. Melissa, welcome and thank you for being here. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Who is the first person that you remember looking up to as a leader? And what was it about them that inspired you? So there are actually two people. Um, the first person personally was my mom. Uh, she was a single parent. And what I realized is that she was the leader of our household, but she was also the leader of our community. Um, she was a staunch advocate for children's rights in public schools, making sure that we got a quality education. She was a staunch advocate around rights for renters. Um, we were not in a financial position that we actually ever owned a home, uh, but she made sure that people who lived in various types of housing, we were in regular housing. The people who were in regular housing, public housing, she made sure that their rights were advocated for um, and really just always kind of looked out for, I'll, I'll use air quotes, the little guy, while although we were the little guy. Uh, and then I would say she was a huge advocate of older folks. Um, as part of her job, she worked during the week uh, in a full-time job and then cleaned houses on the weekend, but also took care of elderly folks and a staunch advocate for elderly rights. Um, so that was probably the, the first leader. And then I would say the second leader that really came about professionally was a woman named Crystal, Crystal Gaskins, uh, who actually ran a headhunting temporary firm that I ended up spending about a year at, but quickly realized that was not my calling. But in a world where you are constantly managing the powers that be that want to hire all these people and move people around and the folks who are sometimes in vulnerable positions and obviously seeking a job, she would always manage to treat everyone with the, with the ultimate respect. And part of the business was actually um, managing hotels and getting service workers to show up. And that's a tough job, right, to try to motivate people who barely are getting paid enough under not great conditions. Um, and so she taught me three things. She taught me how to be a motivator and that recognizing leadership is not mandating, but motivating. She taught me that leadership is not just reporting up, but also reflecting and supporting those who may be underneath you from a hierarchical structure. And she also taught me that leadership was not about money, uh, but it was about producing positive outcomes for whoever your customers were. And if you did that, then obviously the money would come. How would you describe your leadership style and how has that developed over the years? Mm. I would describe it hashtag work in progress. Um, it, it has evolved over the years, I think, two ways. One, uh, the more people I've been exposed to in leadership positions have certainly helped me pivot and make adjustments. And then certainly as my leadership roles have elevated and probably as the more people I've been responsible for has elevated, uh, you know, certainly being managing partner and founder of 1863 Ventures, we manage a lot of people. We have actually tripled our staff this year. And so we went from three people to oh, actually 12 people plus and growing. Uh, and we went from a couple hundred members to almost 10,000 members. And that's a big deal. Um, I, so my leadership style has evolved in terms of more people that I have reporting to me. I think it's, I, I focus on autonomy. I focus, I'm, I'm very clear that my role is to help other people be successful. Uh, I do set very clear deadlines. I am try to do a good job of kind of projecting what is the overall mission and vision, what are the KPIs and OKRs that we need to hit. And then I feel like I need to get out the way. I need not be a micromanager. I need to recognize, particularly since COVID, that people have kids, they have lives, they have 
ways that they know how they perform best. And so we now have people who work for me all over the world. And as long as we made our deliverables, I don't need to know that you're sitting in a cubicle or sitting at your computer from nine to five. Um, And that's because I've been at those nine to five jobs where I literally had nothing to do, but I knew I was told I had to be in the office. Uh, And it just seemed like a complete waste of time. And so I'm really laser focused on outcomes and productivity and advancing the vision and mission and not on what does it look like? Because I think a successful work looks different for everyone. And then I would say more externally, as we now have grown to lots of members and we have a social media presence and I talk to people, I'm mindful that the, the probably the most important from an external uh, perspective on my leadership is that I am mindful that I am modeling not just for myself, but particularly for other leaders and particularly Black women and certainly gay Black women, uh, you know, there are not a lot of us. Um, you know, you mentioned that I'm a co-founder of Eureka, so I'm fortunate enough to be in the first 30 or so Black women that have been supported through venture capital, which is a sad statistic, but for a different topic. And so I'm mindful that people are always watching me. And I would say that certainly as a Black woman, people are always watching you, not always for the better and cheering you on, but waiting for you to make a mistake and slip up. And so I'm mindful that when I step into a room or I show up somewhere, I'm not just representing Melissa Bradley and my immediate family. I'm representing all of my members and potentially sending a single effect of what other people are going to expect as Black women. And the final thing I would say that definitely has evolved since now that I'm over 50 uh, is that I feel a much greater freedom to say what's on my mind um, than I did before. And I, and I do that. I probably said what was on my mind before, but in a way that was reflective of my frustration and anger with the system. And now I say it with the expect, with a level of calmness and the expectation that it's important that we are honest around what do Black communities experience and to phrase it in a way not based on anger, but really using data. And so I would say I've consistently been a staunch advocate for Black and Brown communities, but has evolved from being very reactive and saying, well, don't do this and don't do that, to saying, let me explain to you why I think it's important that we take this up and really letting the facts drive the discussion. Some of that probably comes from the fact that I've worked in two presidential administrations, and we all know that that just goes back and forth and often times based on rhetoric and not fact. And having six kids in a world of social media, I think there's something, the, the art of, of conversation based on facts and data has devolved to uh, opinions and pundits. And, and I think that's a challenge around leadership because your job is not, in my mind, to convince people, but to inform people and allow them to make decisions for themselves. I, I saw you on a post uh, with a Washington Post um, uh, interview, and it you were amazing. And it's interesting to listen to you describe what you just said, because I could see all of that reflected in how you responded there. And um, make one other quick uh, comment about as a company grows, WEPA is growing as well. And you are so spot on. We have, as, as leaders, we have to let go and trust those people that work for us and empower them to do their job. And then Let them roll. And that's not always easy. Helping your employees learn new cloud skills helps your business become more agile, more resilient, and more secure. Not helping employees learn new cloud skills causes your business to become less agile, less resilient, less secure, less innovative, less profitable, and, well, ultimately less of a business. Don't become less of a business. Try Pluralsight and get your employees everything they need to learn new cloud skills. Learn more at pluralsight.com slash vision. 
This episode is brought to you by Zelle. Whenever you're sending money through an app or online, it's important to do it safely. Here are a few helpful tips. First, always make sure you know and trust the person you are sending money to. Second, confirm you have entered their contact details correctly. And finally, if you don't trust the person or your recipient is rushing you to send money right away, think twice before sending money through an app or online.